0: everyone. Welcome back to Constant Chaos. This is Christy and Rachel. We're here today and very, very excited to be talking to Roberta Savage, who is, um, in my opinion, a uh, very well um, respected attorney, um, education attorney in the East Bay Bay Area based out of Sacramento. Is that correct, Roberta? Did I get that uh- all right so
1: far? Uh, I won't comment on how respected I am, but I'm I'm in the Davis area, so yeah, oh, Sacramento, Davis. Me. As a, as a person with children that have
0: IEPs, your name gets dropped on a regular basis. I feel like you're famous. I know
2: we were so excited that <laughs> she agreed to come on our podcast.
0: I was like literally jumping <laughs> for joy. Oh
2: my god, that's hilarious! Well,
0: welcome, Roberta. Can, you want to give us a, a spiel about sort of what you do, how you got into it, your your elevator? Sure.
1: Test? Sure, I, I will do as quickly as I can. So um, I started uh, being interested in kids with disabilities and uh, education in particular when I was in college. Um, I, was, um, I ended up uh, being lucky enough to be a nanny for a kid with autism. So I was a live-in nanny. Um, I was trained by the Autism Research Center. Um, sorry about that. Um, and <laughs> when I went, I went to graduate school, I then went to graduate school and um, have a master's degree in educational psychology with an emphasis in human development and disability within that time in graduate school i learned a couple really interesting facts about myself one i have a bad back um, so i couldn't work with kids like as a phd or do you like direct work two i'm the youngest of four and all of my siblings are married to lawyers and if they hear this they'll laugh i i realized they weren't smarter than me. So I, I could be a lawyer if I wanted, uh, because I knew I now knew three and, and they were kind of like me. Um, and when I was in graduate school, the Rachel Holland case came out about full inclusion. And so our clinic was all talking about full inclusion and what it looked like. And those factors all played together in my choice to go to law school to be a special ed attorney. Um, I had a couple other um, Kind of points in time. So I was a behavior analyst when I was in college and graduate school, and I went to multiple IEP meetings. Had no idea what I was supposed to be doing there, um, but two things that really struck me, which again kind of led me to go to law school for this. One, I was in a meeting, and the team said to this family, "Oh, we didn't get to that goal this year. We we just." We kind of forgot about it. And I had no idea that had meaning. Um, Today, if I was in that meeting, I probably would have said something pretty snarky. But at that time I was like, oh, well then we'll just get to it in the coming year. Um, So that was one. And two, uh, because I was a behavior analyst, I worked with families in their home. This one mom who is incredibly educated parent, incredibly competent in her work, she says to me, Uh, Roberta, do you think I should wear the red blazer to the meeting tomorrow? So they'll listen to me because red is a power color. And I thought, wow, this has like such a massive impact on families, Um, but they're not my families. I could help them. I could be that one step removed and do this work. So all of those kind of pieces led me to go to law school. Um, I stuck with this throughout. I took every opportunity to learn about special ed, and here I am 20 years later, and I feel lucky every single day that this is the type of work I get to do. I look at my in-laws, and now they'll yell at me when I see them. I look at them and think I couldn't do their work. Um, they might say the same about me, um, but I just feel like I have the best job ever. So that's my little spiel. Wow,
0: that's fantastic. I. I kind of like the way you, you know, dabbled in different things to get to where you are.
1: You know, I enjoyed being a behavior analyst. I loved working with kids. Um, I really loved being able to work with them in school settings. So um, it, oddly, I never expected to be a lawyer, although I have a vague memory of being like a five or six year old and someone saying, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I think I, because we used to watch Perry Mason, I think I said either a firefighter or a lawyer. I had no idea what a lawyer actually was. um, And then never thought about it again until I hit graduate school and thought, I could really do this. And, and if it helps people and helps families go through this system, then why not? Um, And i I feel like I've never looked back and I've never regretted a choice I made. So again, I feel like every day I wake up, I can look in the mirror and say, I'm doing something good for some kids.
0: That's awesome. So on our podcast, we typically are focused around learning differences, educational issues, and, and a lot of kids with ADHD attention type situations. So um, we want to try to stay in that realm, although I know that your practice goes you know, a little bit off in probably every direction into deeper um, categories. But um, so one of the things we we get asked a lot, and we want to talk about is why do I call an attorney versus an advocate? Like, where's that line?
1: So <clears throat> that's a good question, um, and it's it's going to be a complicate. I mean, I'd like to be able to say it's a super simple answer, but I think it's probably a complicated one. So. One, let's say in California, um, if you think you're going to be filing an administrative hearing, you will want an attorney on your team as quickly as possible. Um, Because there was uh, an attorney general opinion written that advocates um, could not appear before the Office of Administrative Hearings. So, and I want to say, I'm not great on pinpointing the specific date, it was in the last five to seven, maybe eight years that this opinion came out. Prior to that, so at the start of my practice, advocates would file for a due process hearing, um, and they would go and represent parents at mediation. That's not happening anymore, so if you think that's where you're headed, you want to be getting on some attorney's kind of caseload as early as possible, which doesn't mean you have to start with an attorney. I think you want to look at you know you look at a bunch of different factors. I'm a I'm a firm believer of parents talking to each other about who's effective in your community, who's effective in your school district. Um, advocates may be as effective as an attorney in a meeting because they've developed a great relationship with your school say or your team in a way that's doesn't make a parent feel like they've just been kind of sold down the river, but really is getting their child's needs met. Um, so I think you look at factors like that. I also think parents are looking at um, yeah, how do I say like sometimes people really think having a lawyer in the room makes a difference. Um, I don't know that I'm necessarily that person. Um, I don't feel like I have to attend every IEP. Um, I will say parents starting out in the system, I would take the path of least resistance. I unless unless there's a problem up front with an assessment. I wouldn't be bringing an attorney in. I would bring, um, if if you want help on understanding things, I would bring an advocate in who's got knowledge in that area. So you'll meet advocates who have expertise in um, kids with dyslexia or kids with autism or kids with ADHD, and you want to work with them because they might be able to help you craft goals, craft accommodations that a lawyer like me, I can do in a pinch, but that's probably not what my focus is going to be.
2: Christy, have you? So done, I
1: think it's. Have you? Did
2: go you, ahead. Ad, I'm just curious. On Christy, Christy, did you? Where did, did you start out with an advocate? Did you bring in an
0: advocate ever? Oh, we did. We had an advocate for a while. So, but the thing for us, I think, which was different, and and I maybe you know different people have different experiences, which I want to talk to. Like when we started out, we didn't know what we were doing. We knew there was something wrong, right? And so we asked for the student study team, the SST, whatever they call mm-hmm. the SST meeting, and. Um, right. And I started to realize in those meetings, like I was, I could ask for things and I felt well equipped to be in them and I'd have my notes and I kind of knew where I was going, but the place that always got me stuck was, um, and now looking back, I could handle it better, but it, in the moment when it's your child, you feel very different, right? So when we right. got into goals and, mm-hmm. uh, and knowing whether those goals were realistic. Like I never wanted the goals written to my kid. I wanted the goals to reflect where my child should be. And then I wanted to see what that gap and that delta was. And I felt like the goals were moving so the school system could potentially meet the goals. And, right. and so I had brought in once a developmental pediatrician with me, once I brought in our neuropsych with me Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came to realize that things were not, I, I was not being heard, you know, in right. like, with the team of people that kept changing from year to year. So this went on for like three, four years, maybe before yeah. we brought in an advocate. And then I said, okay, we need to make this work. We're budding middle school. So mm-hmm. I brought in an advocate and I learned during the process kind of where I was headed. If I had to do it over again, I'd probably make some different decisions, but yeah sometimes it's, you know, people always say, say this to us, like, you're on a journey. It doesn't doesn't necessarily end, right? You have different milestones, like elementary school, or what, you know, what at middle school, high school, college, whatever. But these kids are on a journey, and you're on it with them. And so you need to steer the ship where it needs to go in that moment. And so at a certain point, I would think you might lift your head up and go, oh no this is not headed my way and I need to bring in big guns to to
1: to have someone listen to me and pay attention. Right well and I think that it's every so I'll say kind of um, to go back to your original question if you're in a meeting where they're saying oh we're not making any progress but we're not making any changes that to me is a trigger for a parent to call someone to help them. And if it's not an advocate, it's an attorney. If you as a parent are wondering how come my kid isn't reading and they're not trying to do anything about it, you might be looking for a neuropsych to do that assessment, but you also might say, you know, should I be looking to see if they should have been doing something different? Could an attorney or an advocate help me understand that? Like there's, so there's multiple types of questions. So I think if you as a parent feel like You aren't being heard, you want someone in there who's going to get you heard. So I sometimes go to meetings where all my job is, is to be like, I'm sitting there so that the family can speak what they've been wanting to speak for the last five meetings and no one has listened to them. And I do very little other than make sure mom or dad or grandma or whomever is the adult uh, representative for the student gets a voice or for those high school kids, they get their voice in the meeting. There are other times where I might come in and just monitor stuff to make sure things don't go awry. Um, and then there's other times where parents are coming in to me because it's just, it's not going well, their kid is failing and they really need to know, is some, is some am I crazy? Or is something different really need to be happening for my kid? Um, the other thing that I'm pretty firm believer on is when you build your support system, so Christy, when you're talking about your neuropsych, your developmental pediatrician, those people, if they are familiar and kind of standard, op- uh, you know, their standard operating procedure is going into IEPs, they will also help you identify when it's too much and you need to bring someone else in. Um, and, I, and I rely on people like that to guide parents either to me or to say, you know, just get in touch with an advocate or an attorney in case we are not getting what we need in the next two meetings.
0: Right, right. And I think also there's a comfort factor for me. I started to relax more when I brought an advocate in because I felt like there was someone else in charge that was looking out for my child's well-being and um, and kind of to your point, I wasn't sure anymore whether I was being heard and I, I, I don't, you know, we got to the point where we're like, we just need change here and we need something to happen and now it needs to happen fast. Yeah. And right. The other and under- yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Right. I was going to say the other thing that I understand that we can talk about and I want to get into some of the, the dirt on and, you know, again, none of this, I, I'm not intentionally sitting here saying like the school system is bad <laughs> or anything like that because truly, Everybody's situation is going to be different, right? Yeah, every absolutely. Every relationship with the teacher, and it's built on that. But you know, like, like I was told that I don't, you know, as if you hire an advocate and you end up getting a lawsuit, their charges aren't covered. Is that true? So,
1: uh, or potentially covered. I guess nothing's again. Right. Let's let's as you can see, I'm gonna hesitate. So my view is every cost a parent has incurred up to the time they are entering into a settlement agreement or beginning negotiations with the district are negotiable. So if those are advocate fees that you've got or educational consultant, whatever kind of the title is, it's a negotiable term in that agreement. Does that mean it's absolutely every time gonna be covered? No. Does that mean absolutely every time it won't be covered? No, it's negotiable. So it's one of those things that I think is important to show when you're, you know, at, again, at the point of negotiating in a, a settlement and, and entering into settlement discussions, these are all the expenses we have had to incur. So maybe the agreement just covers some uh, speech and language therapy that you've uh, funded or for a kid with ADHD, educational uh, like an educational therapist or a tutor for executive functioning coaching, but you're getting a, a significant amount of that because they aren't going to cover your advocate fees, but that is, the group of money that you have expended, mm-hmm. including your tutor, your therapist, uh, your consultant, plus your advocate has made it so that there's there's a pot A and they're gonna get they're gonna you know, agree to reimburse you X amount of pot A. And so however you want to define that but it's within the money that you have incurred so if you then so so if you then go into federal court because you get to the point of not settling with the school district having an administrative due process hearing and you're let's say you prevailed because you'd have to prevail to be at this point and you were seeking recovery of your attorney's fees and advocate fees, your advocate fees could not be ordered by a federal court judge. So no. that's where the answer is. They, they, you know, like that's the technical answer, but that's a whole bunch of money expended by both your side and the district to get it's to exciting. that point. Uh, it's very, it, it, just in order to get your advocate fees covered, uh, it's very unlikely that, that it's worth it to go all that way just to cover them. If you can otherwise get an acceptable agreement with your district.
0: So Does that the, make sense? totally makes sense. So I guess the, the couple of things that I'm hearing in this for people would be um, from day one, keep your spreadsheet of everything you're putting into this child. Even though you, you don't know where you're headed, it's probably a right. good idea just because. And if you talk to another parent who's been down this road that has experience with it, they'll probably tell you the same, like start tracking when they're little. Um, yep. And Then the next thing is, you know, you probably can get through this process to get what you want before you go all the way down that path, right? So no, there's a big journey ahead of you, even (laughs) though someone may say to you, you know, no, it's black and white, it's not very black and white at all. Right. Um, Right. I
1: say employed because it's not black and white.
0: Yeah. 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 And then there was a third point, but now you know what? Uh, Sorry. I'm getting too old. (laughs) It might be gone. Well, that might come back. Okay, sweet. Sorry. All right. So, worst case you've ever had?
1: (sighs) So, I was thinking about that, and it's I'm trying to figure out like how I want to define a worst case. And I don't know that I keep the. You know, it's it's crazy because, you know, could I say one of my worst cases is case where I lost in the Ninth Circuit? That should seem like a worst case, right? That's probably. But I, I feel like for me at this point in my career, it's like the emotional struggle of it all. And I don't know that I could pinpoint a single worst case, but I will say I've had plenty where... You just know the right, the wrong result is happening. So wherever, whatever your, whatever, at whatever point in time it is, it's the wrong results or more for me, I'm not able to explain why the right result needs to happen. And I struggle with how do I convince, how do I persuade? What tools do I have? to make sure the right thing is happening. So I'm thinking about um, kids who need residential placement um, and how, I have a really like crazy standard. So my view, a kid requires residential placement this is not the legal standard, by the way. No, let's make like really clear. Like, I, <laughs> for me, it's all about like when I read this kid's profile and I see the recommendation for residential placement, would I want that student at that point in time of that report on a public school campus with my daughter? Um, knowing what I know about the kid and knowing what I know about various schools. So, I mean, I've had some incredibly challenging cases with residentially, kids who need residential placement and the struggle their families go through with, with them at home, with them at school. Um, you know, when they go to residential placement, because it's, it's not, it's, it's a, it's necessary, and it's incredibly important, but sometimes things, you know, sometimes kids attempt suicide in those placements, so for me, it's like, am I doing the right thing, helping this, helping the student go to a place, Um, am I doing the right thing, and so I try not to rely on myself, but others, so again, I'm going back to my worst case, and it's all of these, times where I feel like, am I doing the right thing? Am I getting the right result? There are times when I know, and I think I'm usually clear, like it's not a fabulous agreement, but the risk of going to hearing is probably, probably not great either. Um, Because we, we, even though we have like the right thing that should be happening, we might not have great facts to get us there. So I have a hard time saying what's my worst case, but I could probably think back without naming kids and think of the kids who I felt needed residential and I don't know if I was ever gonna help get that family there or help get their money back um, for placing them where it was a rightly placed program or the students who, you know, you hear a story and you're just like, oh my gosh, the student has gone through so much and in their incredibly short life um, because um, and many of these students are students who have been adopted and they're, you know, their uh, birth families, they they went through hell with them. Um, and I just like it tears my heart out. So I, I and I've had cases where I just think I need to get out of here because I cannot. Uh, I'm struggling with everything going on here. Like I'm, I'm, I just, I feel like I'm messing everything up. Not in a malpractice kind of way. I'll say very clearly, but just I can't get the right result, and and it's killing me. So, I don't know that. Again, I'm answering your questions super clearly, but I, I've had bad experiences. Um, but for me, a lot of it comes back to, what can I do? Um, and it comes back to kind of my relationship with the family. Um, mm-hmm. I'll say some of my worst experiences are when I feel like I'm not being told the whole story. Um, because I-, I can't really do my full job if I don't know everything and I learn things later. Like those are the calls from the other side that I don't like to take. Roberta, did you know? <laughs> like, I, uh, um, no, I, I didn't.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, relationship is super important. And um, one of the things we've talked about before we are on the air was uh, was about making sure that you find an attorney and the people that are on your team. Rachel and I always talk about this, who's on your team? Like if I have an attorney on my team, that needs to be someone that I am very comfortable with, that's very comfortable with me, that we know, we have a good working relationship. And that's part of the basis of how you pick your educational yep. attorney would be around whether you want to work with this person and potentially for a long time, right? They could come in and out of your life right. for years.
1: Right. Right. So I firmly believe that I think, every, uh, uh, and I try to try to be this way myself. Um, everyone has a choice. I am not a required, uh, I'm not a required person in your life. I am not the only special ed attorney in Northern California, in California, I mean, there's tons of us. And if you don't like me, you shouldn't feel bad. Just because your friend liked me, or your cousin liked me, or someone that they heard of liked me, um, doesn't mean you have to like me. There's others who have different personality, different style, different way of moving forward, and you may want that. And don't ever feel bad about saying, I'm done with you. I've been fired. Uh, I, I'm sure I'll get <laughs> fired again in my career, um, and it's. It, but it's that important of a decision. So, people like me help families make incredibly important decisions about schooling and services for their kids. Um, and if you can't trust us, or you don't like how we're navigating through, or how we're representing you in a meeting, um, you may want someone who's in their face because you're so tired and fed up or you might want someone who has a more kind of laid-back style. Mm -hmm. Um, You will learn that when they go to a meeting with you and you may, if you need to be able to talk to your attorney or your advocate and if they're not willing to listen to you um, about how you want to proceed in the meeting, um, you might say then I'm going to find someone else Um, and, and again people People have fired me, I'm sure, for those reasons uh, because I'm either doing one or the other or not what they don't think it's going fast enough. And again, you have to trust me. You have to think when you talk to me, I understand what I'm doing and that you really want me to help you.
2: And they need to say,
1: so I fully, what's that?
2: And they need to tell you everything. You need,
1: you need to, if they... right.
2: Right. Yeah. It all out.
1: Even so... those things you don't think I want to know. Right. Probably more so.
0: Rachel, I talk about this all the time, like, even when you go see a doctor or something, like, you're better off, like, throw it out on the table, give all the examples, because if this person's trying to help you, they need to see it through your eyes to some degree to know what you're living through.
2: Now, like, Christy, you do that all the time with me. When I call you about certain things with my kids, you're like, you need to call your therapist right now and tell him all of this stuff. Otherwise, he can't help you.
1: Great, right. so I'm gonna pull it into a school issue. I'm gonna tangent off of what we're talking about and pulling it in. So I know, especially kids with ADHD, because I, I will fit into this category, your, your group of families, um, I'm gonna overgeneralize, so this may not apply to everyone who listens. There's a lot of, I don't wanna tell people what a nightmare my kid can be at times. I wanna, I, I, he's been in therapy since kindergarten and nobody needs to know that. Um, I, all of these things that families, to some extent, many families, not all, feel like they really need to keep away. I don't want them to know that he was 5150 because he attempted suicide at our on our vacation. I don't want the district to know that he's been medicated. I don't want them to know that and I'll, i This is my standard is if you want to hold the district accountable to this information, to serve your kid, you have to let them know. So it's an uncomfortable standard because, but what if I go to this meeting and there's 15 people there and four of his teachers, and now they say something to him in class, those -hmm. teachers should not be disclosing that. But if, if you don't share all about your kid's struggles, then they can't see that whole picture. So much like you've got to tell me everything, I will often push parents when they really struggle with, I don't want to share this. This is really personal. And to me, there's a difference. Like it's personal if there's something medical that has nothing related to schooling, but if it's going to impact them. So um, their ADHD and they struggle with anxiety or depression, and that's why they can't get to school. That, that's not a medical excuse from your doctor for not going to school. That's your special education needs that should be looked at because those are educationally related mental health issues that are impacting you. So I encourage parents to think like how, how much information are they willing to give? Because then then and only then can you hold your district accountable for knowing that about your kid and meeting them where they really need to be met. So sorry I tangent off of that topic, but I think it's kind of
0: No, it's it's absolutely great. But the so my next question based on that then is what about the confidentiality of that? So you brought up, you know, what if the teacher mentions it to the kid? I mean, I have examples of receiving the wrong information that was meant for another parent that -hmm. came to me multiple times. So now I know everything about this child in our community. And I didn't want right. to, uh, you know, I would never mention it, but, you know, I called the school out on it and said, hey, by the way, you know, this shouldn't right. come to me. How do we know that it is confidential in a way that it's to your kid? And but, and then where does it go? Like, I think parents always worry, like, who's gonna impact <laughs> their, who they are, like, may not be president. Like, what, what does this mean? Like, so this information is documented, it's in a meeting, right. it's shared with 15 people. What, like, how do I, how am I okay
1: with that? Right, I, I don't have a great answer for you. There are confidentiality laws, there's FERPA, um, there you know, students who are minors plus have a disability, they have uh, protections, um, but how in practice is that protected? I would imagine districts have pretty strong uh, IT security, um, hopefully, um, to keep all of that information that goes into kind of an electronic record confidential. But how do you stop um, a record that's sitting on the school secretary's desk or school administrative exactly. assistant's desk from, it, it, there isn't an answer for that. that. that's This is where it becomes really um, hard because if you don't share some information, then when you come in to them to say they're falling apart, they'll say, well, Christy, you never told us that even had struggled with mental health issues. Why, why are you now saying it's so hard? Um, on the other hand, how do you keep your kid protected? And I think those are the discussions you have with your IEP team. Say, look, we're gonna share some information, but what are you gonna do to protect my kid? Because if, if the rest of the school finds out about this, we have, there's no way he's gonna keep coming back to school. I think it's a real problem. Um, I think there is no one who has ill intent to share that information. But yeah, you get a random email or they attach the wrong file or something happens and it's inadvertent. And, And then what happens next? And I don't know that there's great remedies for what happens next. To me, I think you hit that, I think you hit it head on with your team and you say, you can't. You know this is where administrators need to step in to say no teachers you you don't call johnny out in class for being you know oh is that your anxiety acting up or is that you know like oh right. whatever you you don't do things like that and you can't because how will everyone else respond or you this is where schools really need to up their protocol potentially or not i mean they might have great protocol On how to keep those records confidential so that when you go to that meeting you hand over a neuropsych report that says your son or daughter struggles with anxiety and depression and crippling and prevents them from going to school on a regular basis. Um, Or your child was sexually assaulted on your, you know, by your neighbor or on a vacation and the whole world does not need to know this there needs to be a way you feel like your kid is protected. Um, and I would just push it on to the school at that team. Like what are the steps we're going to take to keep mm-hmm. this protected and safe? Because it's one thing for adults to be talking about it. It's a whole other ball of wax for a 15, 16 year old kid to get this information and abuse how they use it.
2: Oh, totally.
1: So I think it's a, I, I don't have, like a clear, this is exactly what would happen answer. Oh, okay. But it's a real concern. And I think you ha- parents should feel confident and comfortable in raising this with their team to ensure your child is protected as much as possible.
0: And then what happens to the kids' school records when they graduate? Where do they go?
1: So I don't really know. I know they have to maintain them for a certain period of time, but then I think they just get shredded. I think um, they just get deleted um, because there's really no need. Once a child either graduates high school or um, uh, exits at age 22 in the special education system, um, if they stay that long, there's, there's very little um, after kind of your two year window, your tier statute of limitations for special ed claims or you um, You know, they probably have to keep track of, we all know like, oh, Johnny in the 70s went to this school. So they probably have to keep track some way of that. But all of the other information, so all of the reports that you send, all the IEPs, I think those are just, they can just be kind of put into a shredder or deleted from any file. Uh, There's really no, there's no reason to keep them.
2: So when our kids run for president one day or senate or something, They're, they can't, no one can dig in and find their, their files.
1: Right. I, I believe that schools have like confidentiality rules to kind of maintain, um, any of that. So unless you, as the parent or that student in particular, after they turn 18 signs a release, districts can't release those records. okay Okay.
0: So how many items are like, you look at a normal school system, this, this question is probably weird, but like. How many IEPs are going on within a at, any give- at any given
1: time, like either percentage or? So it depends on the time of the year. I'll say uh, in, uh, well, let's start with 10% of all individuals have a disability. So presumably you could say, not all of those students with a disability, Meet um, criteria for an IEP, but let's say 50% of them. So let's say 5%. So if you have a school of 600, that could be 30 kids, if I did my math right. Um, and so they have to have an IEP once a year, annual review. So there's at least 30 IEPs. Um, of those 30, let's say roughly 30 kids in that 600 kids school. Um, you know, I'll I'll estimate. Um, you know, let's say half of the families aren't happy with those services. So you're going to have more than one IEP in that year. So let's say you, that bumps the number up to 45. Um, And then sometimes as you probably both know, like you have multiple IEPs. So you could have six, on a school site, you might have 50 to 60 a year. So at least one a week, um, doesn't involve your whole I mean as you as everyone knows it doesn't involve the whole school but involves you know multiple of the same people then you could have times where I mean if let's say a high school where you've got more like 1500 to 3000 so you're just going to exponentially increase that so they might have three to five a week Um, I would say in a district like LA Unified it would not be a far stretch to say they probably have an IEP going every minute of every school hour. I mean, in one of their schools because it's so gigantic. Um, San Francisco unified might meet up, might have that many because there's that many kids and they have that many meetings. Um, A district like, let's say, um, Oakland probably has a fair number, maybe not, definitely not as much, but I mean, it, they can take a lot of people's time. Absolutely. Um, a lot, and a
0: lot of resources, right? Yeah. That's a lot of money because these are this is the principal. These are all the special ed people. This is the teacher coming in and out of the classroom. So they're not there for instruction. And I mean, it's a lot.
2: So I have, um, Roberta, I have a question. Um, do you see like with certain districts, like, is it a bigger district with more kids or like a smaller, like Christy and I are in a smaller district. So it's not going to be, but like, I know our principal does all, is at every IEP meeting. So she's got that huge load on her. um, that's taking her away from other things. Do you see like the bigger districts with technically more resources handling the IEPs better than a smaller district? Or where do you see? um, So
1: I think IEPs, I'll I'll say good management of IEPs versus not so great management of IEPs in my view is totally dependent not on the size of the district, but on the administrators and on how that team, how those administrators have guided their team to work with families. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a bunch of meetings, but some of them, if you're working well as a team, might be a half hour to an hour because you have worked with, that team has worked in advance to develop a really concrete set of goals that everybody agrees with and parents are on board and so you're you're doing an efficient meeting um you know i think one of the struggles is that for a person who goes to these meetings all the time they're run differently even though they shouldn't be um they're run differently and there are times i'm sitting in the meeting going what what did i just sit through this doesn't (laughs) look like the last 47 meetings i went to what is and and I start questioning myself like am I what what am I missing here so it's I think it's the way you you know whoever the that highest level administrator who's running that meeting so you might sometimes have a program specialist you might sometimes have a school psychologist you might be where your child is only getting speech and language services so that's the main person Um, you might have everyone, uh, you might have 27 people in that meeting, Um, but it's really who can manage getting through that meeting in an efficient manner, Um, and making sure everyone feels like they've been heard, and so that can happen in a large district, it could happen in a small district, it can also fall apart in both of those, Um, so so it's, I, I, I I think it is, I do, because I think it's, time management of the meeting. What are we gonna do? And quite frankly, you go to some meetings and you feel like you've just wasted my time for an hour and a half. I can't believe we sat through this um, because this was not the point of the meeting. So let's say a parent asks for an IEP to talk about something and everyone sets the meeting because that's what the parent, says. parent has asked for. And then the district says, Oh, it's the annual review, so we're going to do that first. We're going to start with, uh, and the parent is like, all I was here to talk about was X, Y, and Z. You never told me we were going to have to do the annual review first. Um, to me, that's poor time management. Um, that There might be something else I would attach to that, but it, how you manage that. Um, I am not the person who likes to sit in a meeting, so I apologize in advance to everyone who runs their meetings this way, but just know <laughs> if I show up, I will be unhappy. The screen is in front of me. The big, like they've got the PowerPoint, not a PowerPoint, but they've got a screen up with the IEP up and they're going through and they're wanting after everything to say, yes. Oh yeah. Is that your current address? Yes. Is that all the right? Yes. Yes. And and whether it's up on the screen, or they've handed you a draft IEP, which I'm totally fine with draft IEPs, but they hand you a draft IEP, and they're like, we're going to start on page one. Why would we start on page one? Like, can't we have? Right, like, we're going to, now we're going to, now we're going to go to page two. Like, really, can't we just...
0: Let's just get to the meat,
1: let's get to the meat of this. Yes, Yes. yeah. Let's be efficient. That could happen somewhere else, that's crazy. Right. It's, it's, it's fun, It's fun. I like to say. I have a, a u- unusual definition of fun, I've been told. But it's, it's fun. It keeps me on my toes because I have to kind of adapt. So I appreciate the adapting to a different meeting to see can I successfully in that meeting get what my get, – get the family what their child needs. So even in those where I'm cringing at going through the document, I'm still thinking – how do I persuade everyone that what this kid needs is the right thing to do for them today? Yeah. So, so
0: how is distance learning changing all of this? <laughs> <laughs> and how many hours do you have?
2: And like how, um, I was just curious, you know, you were, we we're talking about the live IEP meetings, which sadly are a thing of the past. Oh. Like, is it uh, more efficient? Yeah. Like, what does it look like now with, um, distance learning, where everyone is on
1: Zoom. OK, so let's start with distance learning. Um, you know, distance learning has just brought a new twist into it. Um, and I think, um, you know, people who were unhappy before distance learning are really incredibly unhappy with distance learning. I've had I've, I've had only a very few families who have said, my kid totally takes distance learning. Um, <laughs> And and maybe there are, and I'm sure there are kids out there, um, but how? So, I th- I personally think it's terrible um, because we have so many kids in isolation and um, not able to connect with the teachers who they uh, adore many times or the speech therapist who's like the person who they really love going to see or they connect with the school counselor and you never see those people, you never see the school counselor on Zoom or the lunch lady or the lunch man or the yard duty. They, that person that those kids connected with, they're not seeing. So I, I, I feel terrible with distance learning. Um, I think people are struggling, not just with, and we were talking about this earlier. Yeah. They're struggling with how to educate, like how do you use this? But then the technology itself is a struggle. It's not always working. What about the families? I mean, and, and you're talking about a family who probably is in an area where technology should be fine, but you can't get onto Canvas or you can't log in or you can't, you know, I got kicked out of my zoom meeting or whatever, or someone's it froze and I missed what the teacher said. So I think there's technical glitches that are causing greater problems. But when you, then I think you talk about distance learning, what are those accommodations that you need to start making? Um, And I feel like people are not problems are not problem solving them well yet. Um, I'll use that learning mindset yet um, (laughs) word uh, uh, because I'm hopeful people will start. And I think it's going to take parents being really strong with this isn't working, but how can we make it work? Um, Mm -hmm. And really pushing and saying, you know, I've been looking at whatever platform your kid is on. And these are the things we'd like to try as an accommodation to learning. Um, You know, what about this the thing that I find interesting with the Zoom, you're like right in people's faces, and so those kids who like to kind of slink into the back of the class, everyone can now see. And so, do you get an accommodation for not showing your screen because you're so incredibly shy, mm-hmm. and you you will you know like you won't log in if you get called on? Um, That's so what funny. are those
0: things? I, I, my two sons are talking about that right now because they're saying. Well, you know, if it's a problem, there are kids, you just go, you go and the school has to honor and respect that. And there are kids that have an avatar up or you just see like this part of their arm or, (laughs) you know, right. At my
2: son's school, they're not, they are not allowed to have backgrounds anymore.
1: Oh, I heard someone said that was because you're not allowed to look. They didn't want to embarrass kids about what their, the back, their house looked like. Yeah. So I, why can't
0: you have a background? Like, I, so but they, they say, say
1: no backgrounds. I think is
2: they're distracting.
1: Oh, no background. Like, you can only show the camera, or no background. Like, you can't you have to have it blank. You can't
2: have like you can have your normal backgrounds. Just like you can see my closet oh, okay. right now because no I'm hiding in my closet.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, well, maybe it's because when I read an article or saw a news story about. Um, up in, is it Placer County or Yuba City or something where there was porn in the first couple days of distance learning into high school classes because, whoo, like, (laughs) creative kids. Like, ah that's, that's, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be like some uh, incredible challenges um, for what's happening. Um, So I think, actually, um, I'm going to see more distance learning. I think parents in the spring were really patient and now they're becoming intolerant. Um, especially because, um, you know, they were patient and tried to make it work for their kids and, and for many kids, it's, it's not working. And for many special education kids, when it's not working, they're getting absolutely zero. Mm-hmm. For a kid who might not be on an IEP Having it not work, maybe you're getting 40%, but for a student on an IEP, for for some of them, not all, they get zero, they won't even log in, they won't even engage, they won't do anything. So I think having um, the governor's order uh, in California where we can have small groups of special ed kids go on campus is gonna be important. I think teams really need to be looking at who are those really small set, and when I mean small set, when I, we were talking about the numbers of special education students, like 10% of the population has a disability. Maybe 0.01% of that population are the kids who are going to need an adult with them mm-hmm. at their computer in their home. And parents want it, parents want it to be safe and healthy. Um, schools want it to be safe and healthy. But schools have to be willing to do that or to contract out for an agency that will do that because otherwise you might lose skills you never get back for a student. Um, And I think those are the things we're not, I don't hear people talking about as much. Like what are those skills, not for for someone like my daughter who is going into ninth grade and is just gonna be a pain in my butt during distance learning, but for the kids who when they don't have daily consistent instruction and now we're going on six months of it Mm -hmm. what are those skills that they've lost and how are we going to help them get it back i work i i don't want to sound like so nice and everything but i i actually worry a lot about those kids um, as they become adults because we're losing such an opportunity to make them a more functional adult right Um, and and it's
2: yeah. A lot of What's these that? kids, I mean, I can speak with a lot of these kids with, with ADHD, they, um, they get by with the structure of a classroom and that holds them together and that yeah. being able to learn. And as they get older, they're going to kind of fall apart because they didn't get that. And it's going to, that's right. going to, once hopefully we get back to normal, Right. those kids are going to become the issues in the classroom when they didn't have to
1: be. Right, right, right. And I, yeah, I don't, Honestly, I don't know how they expect us parents to do it. I mean, how, how do they expect? Uh, okay, I have a single daughter, and it we battle. But for a family who has two or three or four students or more who are pub- K-12 kids, and let's say one of them has a disability and is on an IEP, but the others are just kind of what I call, and I was told it's the wrong term, but it's like vanilla kids, like just your standard average kid. It's hard and a struggle for them to stay mm-hmm. in front of a computer. And after we were told for years, don't have your students, at, you know, don't have your kid in front of a screen for more than two hours a day. Now we're insisting they, this is how they get their instruction. And so I I really think I would love to see schools opening for small groups of kids in a safe manner. I'm not suggesting being not vigilant. I'm not suggesting any of that, but just having kids look at each other, see each other. It might not even be their favorite kid. Like, you know, they're not their besties in their group, but it's 10 kids who actually physically see each other. One day, twice a week, you know, two days a week. And that helps them then when they're on the screen. Those other days. I I just, I want to see, I would love to see more of that. And so I'm super curious the schools That are seeking the waivers at the elementary level, how, how they're doing it. I've heard different things about how schools are really putting in efforts to make it safe to come on board. I loved, Rachel, what you were talking about, the teachers in their own classrooms. Oh, it's been so helpful. You you know, how cool is that? The kids get to see, like, that's the class I'm gonna go to. And then when your district feels like five kids can go in in a group or 10 kids, those kids are gonna be so incredibly excited to get the hell out of their house into their school. Um, And so I just, it's scary out there right now I know but kids are losing so much and I think we will be surprised at how excited they are to be back at school and how willing they're going to be to wear that mask to follow those rules to do those things because they don't want to go back to where they're just in front of a screen and that's how they hang out with Johnny and Susie
0: right I think the schools, so a, a couple things. Like, I think the schools need to do a better job with, um, or consider, I'm not sure what's a better job, but consider um, creating, and maybe they're doing this more group work, or at least, so if at least we're stuck behind the screen for a while, right? They could pair up two or three kids to have to work together every day on assignments. Right. Like, they don't have to be, in, it doesn't have to be individual homework. Make it group homework or make it group. Exactly. School time work so they're meeting people and they at least have another like space and i like that it's right. not for buddies because that's a whole different ball game but you know especially for incoming kids like in freshman year or middle school whatever they don't have that continuity anymore and everything's new right and they may not know right. everyone and so building those relationships and forcing them to have some of that interaction because those are skills right. you build right that ability to right. connect with other people, that ability to communicate. And a lot of these ADHD kids have those issues to begin with, right? A lot of them need social skills or they don't read social cues. There's all different kinds mm-hmm. of makeup within that. And so they're losing that. And to your point, right. like what's gonna happen down the road with some of these kids that were now able to hide in, behind the screen right. in their house? Um, and then the other thing, I have, a, I have a brother who lives in Columbia and, I thought it was super interesting what they did with their elementary schools. Instead of changing the kids, they changed the teacher. The teacher went with the same class to the next grade. Right. Great idea. So then yeah. the teacher has to accommodate you know, teaching the next grade, but at least they know the children in their class already. right? They know right. if they have issues, they know what each one needs, and they right. have the ability to teach them in that manner as opposed to, hi, we're all new now, and how's this right. gonna work?
1: Exactly. Right. I mean, I think that's that's the type of creative problem solving you want to see. I mean, I, um, so uh, people who know me, I use my daughter as an example all the time. I was talking with her about the start of school and it's distance learning. And she and her friend said, well, why can't they do some socially distance activities so that we can see who we're going to be in school with? Exactly. You know, like start the week before and have groups of You know, these campuses are large, so you could say, okay, here's blue quadrant, red quadrant, green quadrant, and you have 10 to 15, you know, 10 kids or five kids or whatever in these groups so they can see kids and then be like, oh, yeah, you're in my Spanish class or you're in my uh, Integrated Math 3 class or you're in my um, art class or whatever it is, but they get that connection that might help them stay on task. I mean, it makes sense Um,
2: because they're, my kids are going to soccer with 12 kids. They can be outside.
1: That's a great idea. Right, like why aren't we thinking of those things? And maybe they are, and maybe there's a lot of fear about transmission, you know, what those transmission, but I'll tell you, I've been telling everybody this. I was at the San Diego Zoo a week and a half ago you wanted to get in, you wore a mask. There were You wanted to go shop, you had to wait until that store had enough, like they had a limit on every one of the stores in the zoo. And they had someone you got, there was one way in, there was one way out. If I wanted to shop, I was going to wait in that line. And lots of people would wait, socially distanced from everyone wearing a mask. So when we're motivated enough, we'll do I it. think we're going to do it. And kid, I mean... So we had some kids with us. We took my da- three, three of my daughter's friends. They were so motivated to spend time with each other. Anytime I said, put a mask on, mask was on. Anytime I said, you know, you, know, you guys need to uh, just bear with me, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer. No, no complaint ever. Sure, it's a small sampling. Sure, it was highly motivating activities. But honestly, I think school at this point is highly motivating for a bunch of kids just to get back there. So if they have strict regulations or strict rules on how you have to do it, I think kids are gonna come up and surprise us. Um, and unfortunately we look at the colleges and the college kids who are just like, I'm here to party, I don't care you know, if I wear a mask or not or socially distance and we get those outbreaks. But I feel like K-12 is different. So I am going to be super, um, I-, I tend to, um perseverate on things so one of my perseverations i'm sure will be in the coming weeks those schools that are getting a waiver in california and opening up on site how are they doing it how is it successful because we don't hear about that we hear about when it goes wrong right We we want to hear when it goes right like you know rachel your school like you hear you don't you don't hear about the teachers who are in their classrooms Teaching, for, you know, moving around the classroom exactly. or doing whatever. Yeah, We only hear about the terrible yeah. Zoom meetings exactly. that you can't get on.
2: I actually, one of the things um, that's been really interesting to me is my, um, I know a couple summer camps that were super successful. They put in protocol and these kids went to camp for six weeks and they were fine. And we yeah. only hear about the West or, you know, we, right. we don't hear where it doesn't work. And I think we could learn so right. much as a population. By
1: looking where it's worked. Right. We watched um, kids walk up. It looked like for either surf camp or lifeguard camp down in San Diego. And it was, I mean, they, I watched a bunch of kids walk up. They all had masks on. They were all like keeping their distance from each other, walking up clearly when they're doing their activity, but they, they didn't have that. But when they were in a place where they were going to be encountering a lot of other people, they were following those rules. So I I agree. I would love to start hearing more about those, those areas um, where they're opening up in a safe manner so that nobody feels like they're exposing themselves to this disease. Um, Mm -hmm. But kids are getting out there. I think we're going to be surprised. I think teachers are going to be happier. You know, they want, they want to be back in the class. Um, they want to see their smiley faces or their disgruntled middle school faces because I understand the middle school and high school teachers like that kind of uh, they those need personality, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, they like those times, that age of kids. So I'm right. sure they want to, there's so many who want to be back in the classroom and how do we do it safe? And we just, we're not hearing about how to do it safely. Um, and I think that's, that's the key because this could, as they keep telling us in the news, it could happen again. It could happen again. Do we really want our kids to have this happen to them again? Do I, I, my answer is no. Um, but
2: I think we could talk about this stuff for the next 3 hours, but we want to be cognizant of yeah. your time cuz I know you have a lot of clients. I going to go thank check you. in I have to go check in on my um, students that are supposedly
1: learning yes. right now.
2: Um, so thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. This
1: has been incredible. You're welcome. Anytime. It was great. You guys are, you know, you guys are great. So anything, uh, any other time, let me know. We'll bring you back. Yeah, we'll bring you back. There's so much to talk about. It's ridiculous. All right. Stay
2: safe out there from the fires and the COVID and everything else we got going on in California.
1: Exactly. And go distance learning. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.
0: Rachel and I want to thank you all for listening to our show today with Roberta Savage, special education attorney. Please continue to reach out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and hope you all have a good day. Thank you.